Okay. You ready? Yeah, let's do this. You are listening to the Disruptive Peacemakers podcast, a podcast that asks the question, what is peace? What is a peacemaker? And how can peacemaking be disruptive? One that interrupts injustice, that disarms evil, and takes on the arduous and ongoing pursuit of racial reconciliation and racial justice. Welcome everyone back to the Disruptive Peacemakers podcast. And today we have such a special guest, such a wonderful person who I have just tons of respect for. She is Korean by heritage, Mexican by marriage, and American by immigration. She is passionate and just a fierce truth teller and and a fierce peacemaker. And so I want to welcome Susie Gomez. Susie, welcome. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Hi. Hello. Hey, Erin, how are you today? I am feeling super excited because we have a beautiful Asian woman on today. And I think it's super important to have an Asian voice that speaks because quite often we've been invisible. So this is something that I think is a very important thing to have on a wonderful person like Susie Gomez. I'm excited. Well, thank you. Yes. And she's, she's a pastor. She's a wife, a mom, a reconciler, just so many things. And again, Susie, we're just really happy to have you. And, And we'll just start kind of from the beginning. Um, So you are just this female pastor who's an anti-racist trainer. What's it like to be an Asian American woman and specifically a Korean American pastor in a predominantly, in predominantly white Christian institutions? Uh, There's so many things to that question that I want to kind of go bit by bit. First of all, to even hear you say that I'm an anti-racist trainer is, it, Mm -hmm. it feels, that feels like a big title and I, I'm not quite sure what to do with it. Um, But I also will receive it coming from you. Um, So the both of you having a ton of respect for the work that you do and the lives that you live. Uh, If somebody is going to call out something in you, well, then I'm like, yeah, that's something that's a mantle that I want to live into. And it is something that I'm I'm getting used to even, you know, even the, the terminology around uh, racial reconciliation. I know that people are, yeah, tending to lean towards more. Well, let's get more specific. What are we really, you know, aiming for? And so, being an anti-racist trainer uh, feels feels big and it feels new. Uh, I know that I've been living in this space for a long time, but that that term can mean so many different things to to a lot of different people. Uh, so I'll just go back to the broad scope of this question. Sure. What, what, essentially, I hear that question is, what is it like to be you? Right, and, um, right. Right. And I think my default, you know, as an Asian American woman, I think, Erin, you might be able to resonate with this a little. There, there's a sense of like, um, oh, no, no, no. You know, I'm just little old me. And, and I'm just, I'm, you know, I have to fight against that narrative that I've grown up with to not take up space. You know, uh, I think especially as an Asian American woman, uh, whether our parents know it or not, whether my mom knew it or not, she did a lot of things to, to train me to be invisible or not, uh, you know, be noticed only in good ways or in good, obedient uh, ways and to ruffle any feathers with something or to stand out um, in unique ways was actually 
quite frowned upon growing up in, in my Asian context. So I think for me, I wanted to start with just, you know, what is it like to be me? Well, I'm grateful to be an image bearer of God who happens to be an Asian American woman. And there are so many roles that I play right now. I am a wife. I'm a mother. You know, at our church, I have a pastoral role, but I'm also, uh, I've also been invited to speak in different spaces as well. And so I wouldn't quite call myself an itinerant speaker right now, but I do do a lot of itinerant speaking. Uh, so maybe I am one and maybe I am an anti-racist trainer, right? Uh, because often I get asked to speak about uh, matters of diversity and racial justice, women's empowerment because of who I am, the body that God has placed me in. Um, and it's great. Like at the beginning of this year, I, I actually at the beginning of 2020, I attended a conference, I actually got to co-host, co-MC uh, with another Korean American sister um, at an event that was specifically for Asian American women. And it was called Someday is Here. Yes. And yeah. And, and when I, in the morning, when we were introducing ourselves and when we were opening up the conference, it was the first ever meeting of, of this. It was just a gathering of Asian American women who had never had this sort of space before. And, you know, to be honest, a lot of us didn't even really know what the conference was about. We just knew that we had never had a space like this before. So there were people flying in from all over the country to come to this inaugural conference. And I remember that morning, uh, the very first words that came to mind for me were congratulations. Wow. Uh, and I'll give you a little bit of backstory to it. Uh, the night before, I was at a women's conference. It was at a multi-ethnic church, somewhat multi-ethnic church. And um, an older Filipina-American woman came up to me and she immediately said, congratulations. And, you know, when you speak at a conference or if you speak a message, oftentimes people will say, oh, that was a great message. Thank you for your words. But she just said to me, congratulations. And it struck me as being funny just because it, it seemed out of the ordinary. But the next morning, those words carried over. And just the fact that that we as a group of women gathered together and got to celebrate our Asian Americanness um, felt it felt right to say congratulations. So, you know, sort of a tagline from that was congratulations on being an Asian American woman. Wow. And again, I think the, um, some more thought to that is, you know, often if I get asked a question like this, again, the default might be something like, well, this is how I have to navigate through being a woman um, in, in a marginalized space. And instead, when you say congratulations, it's more like you get to be this person. You get to be a woman. You get to be an Asian American woman. You get to fill spaces that many people who look like you don't get to fill. And um, although it's hard work, and sometimes it does feel like you're doing pioneering work, I get to do that work. And um, yeah, so I just want to start with uh, the fact that I celebrate and I'm grateful for that. That's yeah, great. that's really interesting, the whole celebrate, because I think that um, many of us throughout our lives have struggled with being Asian and have tried everything possible to not be Asian, to be mm. another, something else, some something more white, maybe. Maybe mm. something that kind of has an Asian-ish look, but to be white, mm. right? So yeah, that's, wow. 
Congratulations. I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna think about that often. I'm gonna put it right. in my little notebook. Yes. Right. <laughs> you know, and you grow up with some mixed messages. Uh again, being Korean, Korean Canadian actually. I just recently right. became an American citizen. But growing up in Canada, I do wonder. Uh, there probably were some differences. I mean, I, I definitely felt marginalized at different times. I felt like my Asianness was was I felt the othering um, that a lot of people speak of, especially in my earlier elementary school years. I was one of very few Asian kids, one of very few children of color in in my school. Um, but I think uh, you know. Beverly Tatum, that book yes. that she wrote, uh, mm-hmm. Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Right. Even just the title of that book, when I first saw that book years ago, I resonated with it right away because that's what happened at our, our school. Um, and I think for so many other people. And when you really start to look back and, and think about, um, you know, sort of the the cliques and the, the groups that form, so much of that is formed around racial identity. Right. And so when I look backwards and think about what happened in middle school and then what happened in high school, there are so many different uh, moments that I can think of that helped shape my Asian identity, uh, my Asian Canadian identity. And so w- what, I, what I want to um, go back to is the mixed messages that you hear you know, whether my parents knew it or not, there was this push to assimilate as much as possible. So right. speak English without an accent, um, do really well in school. Uh, don't, uh, don't ever disagree with your teacher. Don't, don't be bad. Right. Um, but then at the same time, growing up as a Korean immigrant, my, my father's generation, the generation that I grew up, my parents were born right after the Japanese occupation. And wow. so, so many of us had that ingrained, like, be proud of your Korean heritage. We almost got, you know, quote unquote, wiped out. There was, there were right. forces working against us to make us uh, feel like our Koreanness was not good. And so there was a lot of, at home, there was a lot of nurturing of the Korean identity and hold on to that Korean ide- identity and be proud of it. But then in the outside world, it was like, but, you know, dial it down so that you can succeed in life. Dial it down so you can still get into the higher institutions of education and you can really make it and assimilate as much as you can. So those were the mixed messages that we grew up with. And I'm glad that, you know, on I, I just, I'm just on the other side of 40 now. Uh, but, you know, looking back 20 years ago, 30 years ago, Things that I see now are things that I never would have seen back then. You know, like uh, these stadiums packed out with girls singing along to K-pop songs and and seeing Korean foods at the grocery store or the K-dramas that you see on Netflix. I know they seem like silly things, but these are huge in the identity formation. And so, yeah, I'm just I'm really proud of how far we've come as a culture. But I know that that also comes with a lot of mixed messages. You know, the ways in which even when I watch a Korean drama and I see um, a lot of some white centering happening there and standards of beauty uh, being mixed in with, uh, you know, Asian ideals. But at the same time, there's there's ideals of whiteness that are being very much so interspersed there. Can you can you elaborate? Let's stay there. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Just this whole notion. First, how do you define whiteness? And then, because uh, you said decentering whiteness, right. how do you do that? And then the whole concept of beauty. Right. Uh, there's so much to unpack there. Okay. So, decentering whiteness, I think from a Korean framework, at least, I think we're still, uh, we're still battling the, the definition of American uh, being synonymous with white. So, when okay. 
in the Korean language, when you say 미국 사람들, which just means Americans, by default, you're referencing white people. Okay. Uh, and I think that that will change over time. But I, I do think that, at least for my generation, Americanness and whiteness seem synonymous. And uh, I think, you know, so many things where uh, in Korea, success is measured by Um, okay, so beauty, we mentioned that, uh, is still, you know, white skin is very idealized. And I think that's, you see that globally, right? So the right. lighter the shades, the the more, um, the, the, the classism that comes right. along with it. Uh, but you still see a lot of beauty products that will, will be like whitening. And I, I actually see a little bit of the terminology changing a little. Uh, right. So I see brightening, skin brightening. And, oh, wow. um, but, but, you know, Five, ten years ago, a lot of the products said whitening, uh, mm -hmm. skin whitening products. Um, I have many of those products, those right? skin, skin whitening products. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and there's so many layers to that, too. Um, even complexion might be the way that people mm -hmm. try to, you know, sanitize it. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, the plastic surgery. Korea is, is the world's leader in plastic surgery. People think that Beverly Hills is, you know, the, where everybody gets all the plastic surgery. But Korea is actually the, the leader in plastic surgery. And I do, again, see some pushback where I think people like being different now in Korea. Right. Um, and so for years, people were doing the double eyelid surgery. Uh, but now I've heard that the trend is the monolid. So people want to be different because so many people lean towards the double eyelid, the more Western looking eyes. Um, and now the monolid is kind of coming back into fashion. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. I do feel like Korea is progressing so much that um, that the whole centering whiteness thing is 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 morphing. Um, and then again, <laughs> Going back to the K-pop analogy, I, you know, this summer when we saw the whole Black Lives Matter movement right. explode across the globe, you know, BTS fans they were the, they they raised a million dollars to match the the group's uh, donation, right. and it just really took off on this whole movement to I, whether they know it or not, decenter whiteness. Um, right. No, that's that's amazing. Hey, Aaron, can you talk a little bit about because you do this whole thing when we do workshop trainings on identity? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because this is right along what Susie's talking about right now. Oh, yeah. So like I said, I have many of those products, those whitening products. I use it in my in my talk whenever we do uh, a reconciliation workshop, because throughout my life, I have like like you said, when you think about Americans, you think about white. I knew I was American because I was born here and I live here, but I always thought of myself as an observer of Americans. So when I see, you know, TV shows about the 4th of July and you see all the white people celebrating the 4th of July, I felt that I was always not really and truly a part of, but just an observer of when it comes to beauty, right? That that intersection of who we are. Beauty as a female is always such a huge thing. And so, you know, growing up, hating my ugly black hair, I wanted blonde hair, like all those heroines had. Cinderella, Farrah mm -hmm. Fawcett. <laughs> those are the best yes and then um and then even i'm glad to hear that the monolids are coming back into uh 
Because <laughs> actually, I was just talking to John when we're doing these these podcast interviews. I'm on the screen where I can see my face, and all I can think is, I think I need to do some eyelid surgery because I don't know if I like. I feel like my eyelids are drooping even more, and I can't see as well. And that's all I can see, even though I know it's wrong, even though I should be grateful for what I have. I look and I can't help but feel all those, um, all the socialization of what mm. beauty is and to see it up close constantly. It's, mm. it's difficult, right? Mm. So yeah, I 100% agree with everything that you're saying. Yeah, uh, And yes, luckily things are starting to change. So I've noticed that there are a lot more commercials lately that show people of color, right? Yeah. In fact, it seems like somebody just got the memo and all these different like <laughs> Target and yeah. Revlon and they got the memo. And so now they're like, oh, we need to make sure we have like five black people showing mm. on the screen. Mm. I do feel that still there is less Asian mm. that I'm seeing um, because maybe we need to something tremendously horrible needs to happen with Asians for them to mm. suddenly be on the screen. But, um, but yeah, I do see gratefully, I'm grateful that I see more people of color. Yeah. But it is a little jarring too. I'll say that because right. I grew up my whole life just seeing <laughs> white people on the screen and yeah. all the fairy tales, they were always white. So now to see people of color, it is a little jarring, which mm. is weird. Wow. Yeah. Mm. You're just hyper aware of it. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, that perpetual foreigner idea, uh, you know, actually, so in the Korean context, again, uh, last year, Parasite won the Oscar for right. Best Picture. And it was Best Picture, you know, right. and and it was a foreign film. It was all in Korean, Korean directors, all it was filmed in Korea, right? What's interesting, I think it was with the Glo Golden Globes recently. So there's a new film uh, that's, it's slow in its release because of COVID and everything. Right. But there's a film called Minari that's coming out with uh, mm. Stephen Yun. He was from uh, Walking Dead. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and a bunch of other films. But uh, it's interesting because there was a little bit of uproar about that. And I think rightly so, because this film actually was categorized. It was nominated in a foreign film category. And it's interesting because there is a lot of Korean dialogue. But the entire movie is set in the U.S. So it's about wow. a Korean immigrant family coming to the U.S. and their wow. experience. So a lot of the movie is also in English and it shows them learning the English. I haven't seen it yet. Right. I've, I've seen the trailer. I actually get to watch a pre-screening of it next week um, from my home. But anyways, um, yeah, so it's interesting how... You know, th there's this this movie which is set in America is still being classified as a foreign language film because of this family that speaks Korean. But it was set in America. It was filmed in America. Um, and, and that to me, immediately I thought of, well, yeah, it's the perpetual foreigner. It's yeah. not about a white family. So, right. Right. Or, yeah. There's more than one person of color right. as the yeah. main character. Right. 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 Yeah, and, and I'm wondering, um, Susie, if it if it goes to um, I, I've heard you speak about tokenism. Mm. Uh, I've I've heard you do talks and and yeah. trainings on that. I, I'm wondering if that's a piece of it too that we had one Korean film last year, and so we can't have two in a row. Right, we're taking so, over. 
(laughs) So to avoid that, we'll we'll categorize it into a different category Mm. so that we can still hold up whatever the best film is going to be, which odds are it will be a white or predominantly white film. So I'm wondering if it's a little bit of tokenism. What do you think about that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I I thought that too. I mean, I think even subconsciously, when you don't break it down like that, I think, oh, that's surprising. Even for me, it made me feel uncomfortable. Oh, can another Korean film? What are people going to think about that? Oh, you know, there's going to be a lot of talk around that. People, but of course, at the same time, I'm cheering it on. Like I want it to do great. And um, absolutely, the Korean film industry is huge. Korea and Nigeria actually have huge film industries. It's so funny. I was thinking a second ago. You started with the question, what's it like to be a Korean American woman in a pastoral role? And we somehow started talking about right. Hollywood. <laughs> um, but oh, so a word that uh, triggered something in my mind was when you said the word tokenism. Um, I think for me, one of the battles that I constantly have, I get in my head about it sometimes. I don't let it affect me too much, but I do often run through the filter of, you know what, when I get invited to speak somewhere, Am I being invited to speak because they mm-hmm. need a minority face, because they need a woman to fill that space? Is it for diversity's sake or do they really feel like I bring value? Um, and actually, Albert Tate told me this. You know, he said, I, I asked him the question, well, how do you avoid tokenism? And, you know, he's in a different space than I am. But, but he did say, he said, you know, I, I think what you have to know is that you bring value. You know, so right. a token can be looked at as just a symbol um, or it can be looked as, at something as something that has value. So I think for me, I've, I've carried that where, you know, I've, I've thought, you know what, I have to, even if they invited me because they needed an Asian American or an Asian American woman and I hit different, uh, <laughs> different categories Check for them the all in one, right? Um, yeah, I have to recognize I bring value. And so I'm going to bring my full self to it and, and the anointing that I know that God has has given me and, and present it with my best self. So, yeah, I think that by having that belief that you bring value is really important because quite often I think that we don't think about those people that are watching, right? So, right, me as an observer of everything that's going on around me and not feeling a part of because I never saw myself, my face, um, people from my ethnicity, people from my race, or when I did see it, they were super ugly, right? Mm. So, uh, Mickey Rooney dressing up like that Asian guy. Oh, my goodness. That's terrible. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's what I saw. But so even if you are that token person, somebody is watching and the more they see people with your face, people with your hair, people with your skin, I think that it builds something beautiful inside them, like a a self-belief, I think, a self, like valuing themselves as something, as a part of, as opposed to just an observer. So yeah, good for you. Good for you. That's something that keeps me going. You know, if... Anytime that I'm in a space and an Asian American woman comes up to me afterwards, oftentimes it's in tears, you know, she'll just come up and say, you don't know what it means to me, you know, or, or actually just recently I had, um, a white woman come up to me and she wasn't, she couldn't even get the words out. And she said, 
I have two daughters, two Korean daughters who are adopted from Korea. And when you spoke about your Asian identity and what you see matters, representation matters, um, it, it struck such a chord in my heart. She was just, I'm so grateful that people like you exist. And I, I want to go home and I want to show this sermon to my daughters, even because her daughters were really young. She said, even if they don't understand it, I, did, I just want them to see you doing right. what you do. Um, and yeah, that, that narrative actually never gets tired for me. Growing up, something that I participated in was if I saw an Asian woman or even an Asian man speaking, I would act very nonchalant about it. I would not want to go up and talk to that person because I wanted to fight against people thinking that I was an Asian. And so I would go to that Asian person and speak to that Asian person, I think that things have changed because yes, now I have Asian women and Asian girls coming up to me after I speak saying, thank you for doing that. But I think for a long period of time, Asians did not want to associate necessarily in public in front Mm -hmm. of other white people with other Asians. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like, okay, when you're walking around the Bose Bowl and you see two black people walking towards each other, they always do the little nod, like so. Gotta do the nod. You gotta do the nod. <laughs> but if you have two Asians walking towards each other, do you know what they do? They turn their face, like they turn oh. their eye, they avert their eyes, right? They don't say, What's up? <laughs> they don't do that. But I mean, it's changing. It's changing now. But growing up, I think that that was something else that we also had to struggle with, right? Like mm. not wanting to associate with another Asian. Because we didn't want to be Asian and we didn't want to be seen as Asian. We want to be seen as something else, as white. Hmm. Yeah, I, I actually want to go back and do some inventory myself. I want to reflect back on that. Um, it's funny because, and maybe this is a, a, a duality at work here, because, you know, my mom is actually quite outgoing. And mm-hmm. um she, because of where we grew up and, and in the time that we grew up, there weren't a lot of other Koreans in my community in Vancouver. And for her, it was like anytime she saw another Korean person or if she, she guessed that they were Korean, even from a distance, she would run up to them and try to, you know, and I think that that's part of being a part of the diaspora. It's the immigrant right. experience. But for me, I wonder how it would have been. Yeah, I, I need to go back and think back to times where I might have averted eyes or or avoided being Asian. Another dynamic for me is that I grew up in Vancouver at a time, uh, right? So I graduated from high school in 1997. And uh, 97 was the year that Hong Kong went back to Chinese uh, control, if you want to say it that way. Uh, but so in Vancouver, we actually saw a huge influx of, of immigrants from Hong Kong. And Vancouver, even now, is a huge Chinese population. And so depending on where you lived in Vancouver, it's a very Asian-dominated city. It's a very Asian-flavored city. And so um, in my community, it took a little longer for the Asian community to move in. But in different parts of Vancouver, it was like the popular kids were Asian. Uh, and so there was, for me in high school, a desire to dig deeper into Asian identity. So I would seek out Asian kids. Um, a huge part of my Asian identity formation uh, happened in high school. I don't know if we have time to go into the story, but I'll give a quick version of it. But this actually was very, uh, it was a lot more identity forming than I gave it credit when it happened. Uh, But looking back, so in high school, I think this was 11th grade. 
um, there was a uh, there was a guy, a Chinese guy. Um, I won't give his name. There's a Chinese guy who uh, was a recent immigrant from Hong Kong. Uh, was wealthy. You know, a lot of the kids that were sort of sent over to go to school in Vancouver were able to right. do so because they were wealthy. So right. he had this, he had this yellow sports car. No, actually it was a red sports car. It was a, it was a bright sports car, uh, drove to school every day. And then one morning he parked right beside um, uh, a guy who was uh, a football player, a popular white guy um, who drove like a Ford Explorer. So this guy, he, he pulls his car up next to the Ford Explorer. And when he opens the door, he dinged the side of his car. Oof. So the football player gets out, starts talking to this Chinese guy. And he's all like, hey, man. Da, da, da. And so this fight sort of ensued throughout the day. And it became like the rumblings of it was basically like, hey, it's going down after school. Everybody meet outside after school. And what I didn't realize was that that day after school, I basically had to choose my ethnic identity. Wow. So I grew up with a lot of these kids going to elementary school with them. I was friends with them all through junior high. And so in high school, yeah, we all started to kind of gravitate towards our cliques. And mine was very much so formed by the Asian identity. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, these are some friends that I grew up since elementary school, some of the white kids. And then there's, these are some of my newer Asian friends. But that day after school, there was like an imaginary line and wow. we stood outside and it was like all the white kids were on one side and all the Asian kids were on the other. A lot, a much smaller group of Asian kids outside. <laughs> right, right. And I had to choose. I stood on the side of the Asian kids. And, and another really interesting ha- thing happened. So there was um, a white South African guy who came to, um, who moved to Vancouver in elementary school because this is when apartheid was ending. Right. And so I remember him coming towards me. We were both kind of standing towards the middle of the line, but I was clearly on the Asian side. So he walks up to me and, and, and I think about it now, like what sort of eyes was he looking at it through? You right. know, having just come from South Africa, but he comes up to me and he goes, hey, Susie, you and I were okay, right? And I remember mm-hmm. just the concern in his voice. Mm-hmm. And he was like, and, and it was very clear, like right now we're choosing sides, but you and me, are, are we cool? Right. Um, and, and I remember mm-hmm. saying, yeah, no, of course. But it felt very confusing inside because it felt like, no, I think right now we're choosing sides. Right. Yeah. Um, wow. So, wow. so how, so let's stay with that story. How a few days after or the days after the fight or the incident, what were you thinking or what were you processing internally for yourself? Yeah, I wish I wish I had kept a journal back then and <laughs> right? I could go back and read on it. <laughs> I, I think what happened was like life kind of gradually went back to normal. Okay. But but I think we were, especially for the Asian kids, we, we were more deeply, for, it brought us closer together. Right. Right. Um, and there was a more deeply formed identity of like, yeah, it's an us and them kind of deal here. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. No, that's good. That's good. Let's let's pivot for a moment. Um, so the title of our podcast is Disruptive Peacemakers. And I heard you speak at APU. You did a chapel about a year or so ago. And you mm-hmm. actually talked a little bit about peacemaking and mm-hmm. kind of gave your own definition of it or, or observation of it. I'd love for you to kind of expound on that. Yeah. Um, again, f- coming from an Asian American female perspective, uh, I think we'd like to think of peacemaking as peacekeeping, you right. know, just that's, that's what comes easy to us. You know, we're just not going to do anything disruptive. We're just going to go with the status quo. We're going to try to go as unnoticed under the radar as possible. And um, I think in that, so in that APU talk, one line that I gave 
was, you know, even as I prepared this talk, I can hear in the back of my head, right. my mother's voice, where she says, Sujia, which means, Susie, don't make the white people mad. Uh, and then I go on to, to say it in Spanish as well, because my husband, I'm, I'm married into a, a Mexican family, and I know that that dy dynamic is there as well. Um, right. And so I think it feels very countercultural for us to be disruptive in any way. Right. Uh, but to really grab a hold of the idea that peacemaking requires struggle, it requires um, intentionality, it requires going against the status quo, it, it requires searching after something that doesn't yet exist. Right. So it means that challenge and change is required. And so, uh, yeah, there's a very big distinction between peacekeeping and peacemaking. Um, and then actually, I, I quoted Jamar Tisby, who spoke the week before me. Uh, and he said, isn't it, um, isn't it, I, I don't know if he says, is it, isn't it a shame? But he says, isn't it odd that the prophets of peace are the ones who suffer most because right. of it or for it? Right. Uh, and so there's suffering involved with pursuing peace and, yeah. and you're pushing people towards something better and more desirable, but people don't like change. People don't like discomfort. Right. And that's what we're constantly uh, brushing up against. Right. It's, it's interesting because as you're saying that, I'm thinking of, I've been reading a lot of James Baldwin and also Eddie Gloud's book, uh, Begin Again, which is about James Baldwin and Baldwin, at one point, when Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, he became hopeless. He lost hope. Mm -hmm. And he lost hope not necessarily, or not rather, not simply because King was assassinated, but King was an apostle of peace. Right. He was a prophet of peace. And if you're going to kill and assassinate the peacemaker, then what hope do we actually have? Mm -hmm. And so as you're saying that, you know, um, it, it is, it's so true that, that those who are actually peacemakers, they are disruptive. Jesus went in the temple, he was making peace, but he turned over yeah. uh, the tables. Yeah. And so, um, in just so many different instances in scripture, um, of, of being, uh, you know, a disruptive peacemaker. And I'm wondering, Susie, for you, has there, can you relate to us a, a time when you were a disruptive peacemaker or, or a time where you now reflect back on it and you had an opportunity to be disruptive and you and you may have missed that opportunity. Oh, there's so many of those. <laughs> and yeah, there's so many of those. You know, when you know something happens and you come home and you think about it and you're like, yes. oh, I should have said this, I should have done that. There's so many of those. And you know, it's not healthy to stay up at night and think, right. oh, I should have done. But but it also is motivating because you 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 don't want to brush that feeling aside because you want to right. know, well, next time I want to do better. How could I have right. done that better? What can I do differently next time? I don't like feeling like this. And I think it's that whole idea of um, like I hate the feeling of regret. Right. Uh, you know, failure is one thing, but regret is like, I should have yeah. done something and I didn't. You can't That's get great. that back, That's right? Great. Whereas failure, yeah, you know, at least you tried. And here's what you can do better next time. Uh, but yeah, I don't want to live with a lot of regrets. And I think in the area of racial justice and peacemaking, um, it's good to sit in those times and think about like, wow, man, I, I wish I would have done that differently um, so that it made, motivates you to grow. 
You know, I think a lot of times when I was a, I was being a disruptive peacemaker, I actually didn't know it at the time. Wow. For example, if when I speak somewhere, I'll hear later on like, oh yeah, I got some emails about that. Or I'll actually have some people come up to me and tell me like, it's actually quite shocking to me as as an Asian who, you know, that whole shame culture thing, it, it would be really out of the ordinary for an Asian person to come up to me and say, hey, you know, that thing that you said, it actually really offended me. Uh, you know, it's, so it's it's very countercultural for someone to do that. But I'm, I should not be surprised anymore. But, you know, sometimes I'll have white folks come up to me afterwards and say, hey, you know, you said this thing and that really bothered me. And I appreciate their honesty and I can always take that feedback. Um, but, but I'm often surprised at like, wow, that was, that was quite audacious for them to just say, yeah, that really bothered me or that made me feel uncomfortable because I've had to navigate through so much of my life being uncomfortable or being offended by things that you've said or done, but I've never brought it up to you. Um, so there's something that I can learn from it. And it's also something that I can, you know, think, oh, that's, that's different. <laughs> um, or maybe even that's kind of cool. I made you uncomfortable. Nice. Right. Right. Um, and so, you know, even thinking back to our conversation earlier about, um, you know, what you see matters. Um, I remember listening to Sung Chan Ra, uh, like 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I remember like just being almost in the afterglow of people's reaction to him because he <laughs> said things in such an unfiltered way, it was so refreshing for me. But I remember being in the green room uh, with a group of other speakers. And I actually was driving a group of speakers back to their hotel. And and actually, I think the whole van, everybody in the van, they were African-American. So mm-hmm. these are all speakers and leaders that I, I respect and, and really just learned a ton from. But hearing them process his talk wow. was really interesting. Because one of the things that I heard was, Man, if I had said that as a black man, you know, like it would have been received so differently. But it was also it, it was refreshing to hear them say, like, I was, I was like, I was up there saying hallelujah right, from right. the front because it was like, yes, say it. You know, <laughs> we need other voices saying this. Um, and so it was really, and and then also <laughs> watching a lot of white people be offended and and right. a lot of white people who sat in their seats in tears, you know, and I went home, I, ha- I had a roommate who was white and, and she said, she was just being really honest with me about how she processed that. And she goes, you know what, honestly, it did make me feel really uncomfortable, but I, I feel like this discomfort is really good. And one, so one of the things he said was, uh, I know it's very, uh, almost sounds cutthroat, but, uh, he said, if you are a white person who is doing ministry in an urban context and you do not have a mentor who is a person of color, then you are a colonialist and not a discipler. Wow. And so, yeah, so that was the thing that my roommate sat with. And she said, I, I really need to press into to finding cultural mentorship. And then, yeah, it's it's refreshing to hear people like Kathy Kong and people yeah. who are just kind of like, you know, the, the filters have come off and they're not so concerned about making white people angry. Right. Yeah. Which goes against what your mother taught you. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And not and only what, culture, what my mother taught right? me. Right. Yeah, exactly. social, socialization. No, right. you should be quiet and you should let the other people talk and they should feel good with everything that you say that's so that they like you, so that they accept mm-hmm. you. Right. Right. And it, it's yeah. not just socialization. It's, it's survival. Yes. Right. Yeah. 
Yes. And the yeah. implications that come with it, being a, a speaker or being, you know, whether or not you're invited to places, it's people's reception of you, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so. That's good. Well, let, let's shift just slightly. We're going to stay with, with race and ethnicity, but let's add that intersection of gender. So how's yeah. your understanding of gender shaped your role as a peacemaker and as a pastor? Yeah, you know, um, one of the words that you used, I think earlier, uh, was disarming. and. Right. I don't know if this was just in our preamble before we started recording, but I remember somebody telling me, or I've gotten feedback from a few different people who have said, you know, one thing that makes it, they didn't use the word comfortable, but one reason in which I enjoy listening to you uh, speak about matters of racial justice is because I think initially they didn't know what to expect. And then, you know, this this one brother, I remember him saying, it was very disarming because yeah. you started off with a couple of stories, you were being humorous and you were being lighthearted. And then you went, you know, you went deep and, and <laughs> I felt like you went for the jugular. But at the same time, because you did a good job of sort of disarming all of us, I, I think mm-hmm. I was able to receive it. And, and you walk a fine line between, um, again, centering whiteness and being too cautious of white feelings um, and, and being disarming. And I think that there is, I think that's something that I respect in the both of you a ton. I think mm-hmm. that you're both very good at disarming a crowd because of just your personality. Because I'm a big black man. That's why I have to do it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Again, survival. Me too. <laughs> okay. Um, but no, but actually there is, there is truth to that about the disarming yeah. because people expect you to be a certain way. People expect right. for Asian American women to be more docile, to be more quiet, not to be feisty, not to be, you know, blah, 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 the whole list of things. Right. And so, and I, I think actually even, um, I think oftentimes people don't even expect me to speak English without an accent, oh, depending on where I am in the world. You know, it's still surprising to some people that I can speak English without an accent, uh, without an, an quote unquote, Asian accent. Um, I remember in the 10th grade, I was in English class and I had this teacher in the eighth grade as well. So uh, eighth grade and 10th grade English teacher, I was a top student in his class. And I remember one day he just kind of (laughs) crouches down next to my desk and he says, you know, Susie, and he was trying to be encouraging, but he said, you know, Susie, I am just really impressed with how well you do in my class. And I didn't know where this was going at first, but then he goes, well, tell me like, what's your, like, when, when did you come to Canada? Like, how did you learn English so well? And I was just like this, right. you know, I was born in Canada. And, and then it made me start to doubt. I was like, was he more, was he more forgiving towards me? Did he give me better grades because he Ooh. thought that I was overcoming an <laughs> obstacle, you know? And then it just, it's kind of like my own merit uh, came into question because I was like, I know I was a good student. I was the top student in your class. And, th- and then you cast doubt on that wow. by, by saying, wow, I'm, I'm so impressed by the obstacles that you've had to overcome in learning the English language. So, And it, it comes cloaked in this purported compliment. Right. You know, and it ends up, like you said, cutting a part of, you know, uh, impacting a part of who you are because right. you started to doubt your skills. And again, is it me? Was it him being generous? So yeah. Right. Yeah. Crazy. So yeah. crazy. What are the, um, the barriers? So let's talk, keep talking about peacemaking and, and reconciliation. What, what are, what do you think some of the barriers are that, that hinder us from really making peace or, or being truly reconciled, especially in the church? Oh gosh. Um, th- I mean, it seems like an, obvious thing that we're seeing right now, you know, even when it comes to 
politics and right. uh, Black Lives Matter, all these things that we saw in this last year, churches are by and large unwilling to lose their base. Yeah. And wow. you know, when you have the deep pockets that come from wealthy white donors. Yeah, you're just unwilling to ruffle certain feathers to, you know, quote unquote, keep the peace. Right. We just avoid the conversations that are absolutely necessary to actually get to a place of peace. Right. And again, I know that you guys have come up against this a lot too, but I, I know that people have a problem with the term racial reconciliation. Right. Because right. how do you reconcile something that was never united in the first place? Absolutely. Uh, and so leaning into the terminology of racial justice, um, Racial righteousness. Racial righteousness. Yeah, I really like that. Or even, you know, terms that get not overused, but terms that that become familiar and then people don't even want to use them anymore. So white supremacy. I still right. think that that's a proper term to use, but so many right. people have feelings about that. They think they know what that means right. and then it just becomes a cuss word to them. Right. Um, Racism so I, is a cuss word to some. Right. Exactly. <laughs> we can't even use that word, right? Right. And... um. Yeah, I think it's just it's it's our unwillingness to um, to shake things up, unwillingness to admit that there's a problem. Yeah, yeah. I don't feel like I'm saying anything new here, but at the same time, it's like uh, you know, you think, man, haven't we had this conversation a hundred times? But there's still a lot of people who don't get it. Yeah, yeah. People just aren't aren't ready to. A lot of people are not ready to shed comfort. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think. Um, for a lot of folks, I think that is really the core of it is if we're going to really be disruptive, if we're going to really bring, make real peace, then we have to break through the status quo because for a lot of people, peace simply means let's stick with the status quo. Mm. And if the status quo is uh, still causing uh, oppression and racial injustice, um, people are more inclined to to let that happen than to be uncomfortable and even think about the thought or the possibility of losing something. Yeah. And so, so, so there's, to me, there's this weird dichotomy that happens within the church uh, where we say that God is big, God is expansive, but he's not big and expansive when it comes to issues of race, he's <laughs> constricting. And, right. um, and there's only a certain amount of, things or goodies to have or to be distributed. And I don't want to get rid of my goodies. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. There's that sketch or the monologue that uh, Dave Chappelle did right after uh, Trump won the election. And there's that right. one line where he goes, well, I don't want to share. I just got this money. Right. Right. And it's kind of like, yeah, people of color who have made it to a certain right. place are kind of like, oh, now everybody's getting woke. And I, you know, it's going to cost me something too. Um so, you know, comedians have the luxury of speaking yes. without a filter that I, a lot of preachers don't have the luxury of, of leaning right. into too much. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it so takes true. a lot of discomfort on a lot of sides. For sure. For sure. Speaking uncomfortable things, I think, is what has to happen. Because if we don't and we just keep talking in a way that doesn't ruffle any feathers and that feels safe and comfortable... Why would anybody want to change? Why would anybody want to see anything differently unless they have to, right? Right, right. And it's so, like we need, yeah, we need an intervention. We need to be told there's a problem. It's, it's, it's like the church is that alcoholic that can't admit that they have a problem. Right. Yes. And the family needs to come in and say, no, we're doing an intervention right now. Um, but, Tough love. Right. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, for sure. 
So what's one book that you would recommend that kind of either impacted you significantly or that you think folks should be reading today? Uh, you know, I think a lot of us have read so much. And especially with all of the reading lists that came out this summer, like here's who you should be following. You know, actually, that is something I, I feel like sometimes people feel like they don't have the time or the discipline or they just don't right, like right. reading as much as some people do. So they like the bite-sized pieces. So it's, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a podcast. So this would be a podcast that I Thank will you. recommend to people or it's even a follow on Instagram, like, Oh, follow this yeah. person. They give little bite-sized pieces of information that are good and go on a journey with them. Um, I do think that uh, Jamar Tisby's the color of compromise was something that I got to do in community wow. this summer. Uh, so we did a book club and then, Oh, so I don't know if it's still available, but on Amazon, Amazon Prime uh, for the the video version of it was available for free. And I thought that was really powerful too, because there were some uh, visual images that were yeah. added into it. So we can expand it. It doesn't have to be a book. Thank you. That's, that's, that, that question was too limiting. So what, like um, you talked about some podcasts. Sure. Um, okay. So speaking from an Asian American perspective, yes. um, I will plug some days here with, yeah, uh, it's a great with, podcast. Yeah. So she's really done a great job of, uh, highlighting Asian American, um, female voices. Yes. And so some days here with Vivian Mabuni, she actually also in the podcast, uh, at least for the first few seasons, it's not just Christian voices either. There right. are quite a few, um, believers who are on the podcast, but, uh, there's a good array there. Um, again, I, I love that you guys are doing this one because I think that uh, sometimes people get stuck feeling like they can't do the work of racial justice because they're not as uh, experienced or not as outspoken or not as quote unquote out there as some folks. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I, I appreciate how the both of you have not like have not basically said, I'm going to kick the the white church, you know, right. to the corner and say, get out of the way. Um, you know, sometimes that's necessary to say, right? Yes. So for, from our perspective, I mean, just staying with that, to me, there's space for the invitation of bringing white folks in mm -hmm. and space needs to be created for just people of color. Right. Because, because we table. all... Right. Exactly. That's, one, yeah. mm -hmm. that's right. That's right. And so and so because we all need to be racially healed. I mean, mm -hmm. for, for at least from our vantage point, that's kind of how we see it, that we're all racially sick uh, through uh, white supremacy, through misuse of power and all those things. So there's space for that conversation with white folks. But we have to create space for for people of color. And then even break that down even more. We have to create space for women, you know, uh, where we where we talk about these things and really challenge notions of power and the misuse yes. of power. So, yes. yeah, I'm good. glad that you followed up with that because I didn't want it to be left thinking like, oh, when you whenever you have a conversation that excludes other people, it's wrong. Because, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's not my sentiment at all. No, yes. no, that's good. Um, what's the one question that you would want our listeners to be thinking about? Like if they're trying to be reflective, um, like what, what would your challenge to them be? Uh, you know, think about this or think about this question. So Andre Henry is another person that is a great uh, follow. Yes. 
um, yes. Hope and Hard Pills. Yes. His podcast is great. And yeah, his Instagram page just always is full of gems. But the thing that one of his like taglines, the thing that he has like written on his shirt is it doesn't have to be this oh, way. Man. And I think about that a lot because in the places and spaces that I'm in, what can I do to create change? What yeah. can I do? So what do I see if I, if I can see or feel a problem? Right. You know, it doesn't have to be this way. So yeah. what can I do to help move it forward? What can I do to help create change is, is probably the, the most micro level question that I can ask. And then actually even just, I don't know if this is a macro question or a micro question, but really just before the Lord, it's like, what, what do you have for me in this space? Yeah. Because sometimes I'm not required to be the person who I, I'm not required to be the Martin Luther King Jr. You know, okay. um, but I, I, I'm required to maybe, you know, do send out letters or I'm, I'm required to, right. there, there's little things that you can do. There's big things that you can do. Um, but, but being faithful to in this place and in this space, in this season, yeah. what does God require of me? Um, and how can I be faithful to that? Oh, that's good. That's okay. I love that. Um, whenever John and I do these workshops at the very end, people, the biggest question we always get is, well, what are we supposed to do next? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is the answer, mm -hmm. that it's just about being self-reflective, thinking about who am I in this space? How is it that I can make things a little bit different, even if it's just a little bit? And yeah, how to, how to just, um, what is it that God wants me or where is it that God wants me to be? So yeah, I think that this is workshop 3.0. That's the answer right. right there. That's it. That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, any last thoughts or words that you have for us, Susie? Oh, I don't want this to sound cliche, but it's the first thing that comes to mind. Just remember, it's a journey. It's a marathon. Um, we're not going to get it all done in one day. And this is the thing that I have to tell myself quite often is, yeah, just faithfulness, you know, uh, yeah. that obedience for a long time and uh, faithfulness and and knowing that we're not the saviors, <laughs> uh, but we have our part to do in the Great Commission. And part of that is the discipleship of of racial justice. That's it's amazing. That's so good. Well, Susie, thank you so much for joining us. It, this has been such a great conversation. Um, I know our listeners will enjoy it. And um, if they want to get in contact with you, how can they, how can our listeners do that? Uh, I do have a website, susiegamez.com. Um, I, I need to juice that up a little bit more, but there's a, a few sermons on there. And then there's like a form that you can fill out to get in touch for speaking stuff. But Instagram is probably the biggest social media place that I'm on and off of. So Susie K. Gomez is where I'm at on Instagram. No, that's good. And for those listeners who are looking for amazing speakers, Susie is just brilliant, uh, theologically sound, um, and quite funny, actually, <laughs> too, uh, when she speaks. So, uh, Aaron, anything else you want to say before we end this? No, I just, this was a wonderful, well, wonderful time uh, spent together. I learned a lot. And um, thank you so much, Susie. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be on this podcast. Cool. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>